You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today marks our 100th episode. And in a wonderful bit of symmetry, our guest today is Tina Rad of the Wagner Law Firm. Those of you that follow Workplace Perspective will recognize Tina as our very first guest back in 2017 when we started. Today, we'll be talking with Tina about how to avoid the most common pitfalls when contemplating or conducting a workplace investigation. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome back to Workplace Perspective, Tina Rad. Hi, it's so great to be here today. Thank you so much for having me back for your 100th episode. It's so exciting. Can you believe it? Oh, I can't. Five years. I can't believe it either. It's gone by so quickly. It's just amazing. And I'm so happy that you were able to come back and be with us. We've grown. We've changed. (laughs) Great to be here for the evolution. (laughs) I love it. Well, Tina, before we get started, why don't you just tell our listeners and remind them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am an employment uh, lawyer, but after seven years of practice as an employment law litigator at a big firm and a small firm, I realized I just wanted to get to the bottom of what really happened in all my cases, but I didn't want to fight about it afterwards. So I switched over to exclusively conducting workplace investigations as a neutral third party, and I've been doing that for the past seven years now at my current law firm, Wagner Law. And conducting a workplace investigation means I come in as a neutral third party and I investigate all manner of claims, disputes, concerns, issues raised in the workplace for all kinds of different companies. Most often I'm looking into discrimination, harassment, or retaliation, but it could be anything that someone complains about in the workplace, like embezzlement, bribery, conflicts of interest, whether someone's dealing drugs at work, whether someone's stealing company materials, anything employees complain about that either cannot or should not be handled internally. And I like to clarify that I'm not the hiding in the bushes type of investigator. So everyone knows who I am and what I'm doing. I talk to the employees, I gather documents, I find out what happened, and I report that to the company so they can decide what measures to take. Well, Tina and I have had some amazing conversations over the years. Um, as when she was litigating, she was on the defense side. When I was litigating, I was on the plaintiff side. And we have shared wonderful notes over the years, which hopefully when both of us are on the eve of retirement, we'll come back and we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll share with you some of those conversations that we've had. Uh, but for now... <laughs> 
would love to. On our first show, Tina, you talked with us uh, about the Fair Employment and Housing's guidelines on conducting an effective workplace investigation, which had just come out in 2017, been revised. Um, It's one of our most popular shows, and we'll tell you that. And today's uh, 100th episode, five years later, we're going to be talking about some of the most common mistakes that companies make when they're thinking about doing an investigation or they're faced with the possibility or when they're actually conducting a workplace investigation. So we have 10 pitfalls we want to get through. So let's get rolling. What's our first what's our first pitfall to watch out for? All right. So the first pitfall is just failing to investigate in the first place. So uh, there are lots of times where it may not be entirely clear to the employer that they have to investigate. So there's the easy scenarios where somebody brings up a specific type of discrimination or harassment, some kind of legal issue where it's obvious or more obvious that you're going to need to look into it. But there's a lot of times where it's a little more subtle. Maybe the complaint didn't contain any legal buzzwords like that, or maybe the complaint didn't come through formal channels. Like it didn't come through HR or an established complaint process that the company has. Maybe supervisor heard it or heard about it, or maybe the complaint wasn't in writing and the company generally asks employees to do that. Uh, Or the complaint was made anonymously. We get that a lot these days, especially with the advent of these types of hotlines that a lot of companies are using where people can call in anonymously. I think in those cases, it's obvious for companies that they need to investigate those because they set up the hotline for that purpose. But we've had situations in the past where somebody just writes, types out a letter and inter-office mails it or sends an email from an anonymous email address. Uh, So we've seen a lot more of those. Also situations where maybe there was an offhand comment made outside of work at the happy hour about something or or the employee didn't request an investigation and actually asked the person they talked to to keep it confidential. So those are situations where actually most of the time you're going to have a legal, legal duty to investigate anyway, but employers might fall into that pitfall where they think maybe they don't have to take action on it. And of course, the consequence of that is if they don't investigate some type of perhaps discrimination harassment that occurs again in the future or occurs to another person uh, that could subject the employer to the additional claim of failure to prevent discrimination harassment down the line and it also could create an inference of malice that could support an award of punitive damages like so the plaintiff may say see this employer didn't care because they had heard this complaint from this other person and they didn't do anything so this complaint of complaint that the company did nothing argument is pretty hot in litigation and it can overshadow the merits of the underlying claims because it's very sympathetic to the jury. So even if none of that happens as well, the employees just may lose trust in the complaint process and not bother reporting other issues, which could lead to future liability. And then the employer can't take any action to do anything about those things. So uh, the way we see this a lot where it's confusing to employers is the phrase toxic work environment. That's a big one right now. A lot of employees use that phrase. And a toxic work environment could refer to anything. It could be that they just don't like the way their manager manages. Uh, Manager's Mm -hmm. kind of hard on them. It could be that there's actual race issues going on. You know, there's all kinds of things. So what employers really need to remember to do in these scenarios is inquire further, find out more, and never just say, well, it was anonymous or, well, it wasn't formal. Find out more about what this person's talking about so you can determine if it's something you really need to investigate and how. Absolutely. And I always think that it's so important to remember that for when you're training your supervisors and managers to let them know that they're not making those decisions. Mm -hmm. I think that's 
needs to be a transitional mindset because I think traditionally people think that the supervisor was making those decisions about whether or not to report it up the chain. And I think you just can't do that anymore. You just have to, you know, everything's got to go up the chain. Let somebody else make that decision. Just, just report. All right. Next on your list. So next on my list, after the employer has made the right choice to actually (laughs) investigate the issue so that they get themselves in further trouble, number two is moving too slowly. So this happens a lot because companies' internal investigators may be really busy or uh, they're working on their day-to-day obligations, and so they're tempted to shift the investigation to the back burner. And that, unfortunately, can have these ramifications where initiating or conducting an investigation too slowly can give the impression that the company wasn't committed to a fair investigation. It can create the inference that the investigator was biased. So if an internal HR person maybe knows these parties, doesn't jump on it quickly, uh, it could create the impression that they didn't want to, or maybe their supervisor pressured them not to. Also, it can create the impression that the company was fine with just allowing this bad behavior to go on for several weeks or months, and that created further harm or further emotional distress. So if you're just thinking about it from a liability perspective, if somebody's facing ongoing harm in the workplace, they've raised it. And now the investigation is not happening fast enough. Every day they're racking up their emotional harm and their punitive damages. So it's really crucial to choose an investigator who has the time and ability to conduct the investigation quickly and efficiently. And timeliness really is a critical aspect. So if the usual HR investigators are swamped, it might be time to look to an outside investigator for this one. I think that's really important. That one leads to the next pitfall, which is choosing the wrong investigator. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of ways you can choose the wrong investigator. And so I'll talk first about what the right investigator should have. First of all, bandwidth to do the investigation in a timely manner. Secondly, the right amount of training or experience with conducting investigations. And that's so that they will be asking the right questions of the right people in the right way. Subject matter expertise, the company is going to need to rely on the investigator to issue spot, figure out what the legal issues are or what all the other issues are that these people are raising and figure out what the scope of the investigation needs to be and then report all the facts that are needed to analyze the legal claims and identify any other potential employment law issues that may arise along the way. So a lot of times I'll get engaged to investigate a certain set of legal issues and then the person will subtly bring up something else. Maybe they throw out a meal or rest break issue that I wasn't expecting to hear about. And I'll flag that for the company because that may be something they need to look into internally or at least be aware of that somebody's throwing out those issues. So it's important to have somebody who's seasoned enough to pick up on things like that. Also, a really critical aspect is the impartiality of the investigator. You don't ever want the investigator to be biased, obviously, but you don't ever want someone else to think the investigator's biased. And that's just as important as whether the investigator truly is biased. So the impartiality of the investigator is important because someone with a relationship to the complaining party or to the accused party could appear biased just on its face. And it's important for people to have faith in the process. So those are kind of the more uh, perhaps obvious ones. And then there's a very subtle one that a lot of employers don't know about, which is that an investigator has to have the authority to act as an investigator under the Business and Professions Code. California Business and Professions Code 7520 actually regulates who can conduct an investigation for a company as an outside party. 
So an outside HR consultant actually likely doesn't qualify. It has to be either an attorney practicing as an attorney uh, or a private investigator, or there are some other exceptions that are really unusual. But a lot of times the company will say, well, I've got a great outside HR consultant that I used for my policies and all, all these things. And if you don't have an attorney supervising that person, you may be running afoul of the law and conducting a misdemeanor. So there's a lot of ways that you can choose the wrong investigator. Which, uh, yeah, I think that's super important. And I really, you're right. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that because they think that all you need is experience. Right. Not the, you know, not the legal aspect of it. So, yeah, a lot of times really the safest bet is to go with an attorney because an employment attorney is going to have all of those, likely to have many of those things. Although I will say you can choose an employment attorney who doesn't have the right demeanor expertise or subject matter training. And so it's really important for the person to actually have some investigations type of training as well. And qualified outside investigators may be a good choice when there's certain factors in play. So let's say there's a higher risk of a lawsuit or an agency charge, like an EEOC complaint, or let's say the accused wrongdoers are in HR or above HR, or they're the in-house attorneys or executives in the C-suite or officers. Uh, Those are really situations where you do not want an internal person investigating because how can you really investigate your boss fairly? Uh, Also, you may want to bring in someone from the outside if it's their allegations of widespread wrongdoing, like company-wide discrimination. Uh, We're seeing a lot of those types of cases, especially with the racial justice movement. Or if there's potential for bad publicity, or if the, as I've said before, if the internal investigator's experience or impartiality can be challenged, it's just a good idea to bring in a third party. And that really gives a lot of credibility to the investigation and the employer for taking it seriously, bringing in a third party, paying that extra money. People really perceive that positively in the workplace. And we've noticed that they'll share a lot more sometimes with us than they will with their internal HR people. And when we go back and report out what we are hearing, they're surprised to hear all these things that people have shared. Yeah, because there's so much going on. Even in small companies, there's politics and there's, you know, there's worry about saying the wrong thing and how that's going to be perceived. Um, All right. Awesome tips. We're going to take a quick break and we come back more cautionary tips from Tina Rad. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Take a step toward bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us, and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking with Tina Rout of the Wagner Law Firm about the 10 most common pitfalls when it comes to uh, conducting a workplace investigation. So we're trying to get through our 10 pitfalls. I'm going to tell everyone we are going to make sure that all of these pitfalls are up on our episode webpage. Um, so you'll be able to review them if we don't get through all of them, but we're going to do the best we can. So we're going to push forward. What's next? All right. Next, we have not being thorough when you conduct an investigation. So there's a lot of aspects of an investigation and providing a thorough investigation that are really important. One is interviewing the accused party. (laughs) There are people who have skipped this step. There are, aren't they? Isn't that amazing? Yes. Yes. Because you can get so convinced by the complainant story and maybe they sound really credible. Maybe their perception was really credible. But when you talk to the accused party, 
there's information you did not anticipate hearing, and it can change the whole landscape. So yes, providing due process and an opportunity to be heard, that's crucial. Interviewing all the relevant witnesses. So let's say there are other people who have evidence or can impact credibility assessments, and then asking the relevant witnesses for all relevant information. So a lot of times, just these catch-all questions like, is there anything else you think I should know? Or is there anyone else I should talk to can elicit responses that other questions didn't. Also asking important follow-up questions during the interview if unexpected issues come up or if it sounds like there are documents somewhere that you didn't know about. And then obtaining those relevant documents and electronic evidence. That's always a fun one with electronic evidence. There's a lot of stuff you can get. Sometimes people will plug their phone into their work computer and download everything on there. Um, And then you find a treasure trove. You may just need to do a regular email search and you'll find some really critical documents. So really being aware of and text messages, contemporaneous texts, even so their friends can corroborate a story. So just being aware of what's out there in terms of documents and getting those. And then if it's necessary, doing a follow-up interview with the complaining party. Sometimes you need to go back to the complaining party and say, here's what the respondent said. And can you explain this or that? Or, you know, are there inconsistencies in their story compared to other people's stories that maybe they can rectify? Again, it's important not to make assumptions that they can't speak to those. And maybe you go back and they've got a great explanation. So a cursory investigation is going to give the impression that the company didn't take the investigation seriously and didn't conduct it in good faith. So all the more reason to have an experienced investigator who knows what they need to be doing to conduct a thorough investigation. So much to talk about. I can power on through to the next one. I know. Let's go to the next one. We'll start right. that at the end a little bit. Next one is taking sides. So again, if you're conducting an investigation, you need to remain neutral. You've got to be unbiased. You've got to be objective. So things that investigators should avoid is either openly empathizing with the complaining party, like saying, I'm so sorry this happened to you. You know, you may be tempted to, to empathize, but it's really important not to say anything that makes it sound too much like you're taking someone's side or defending the conduct of the respondent to the complainant, uh, reaching conclusions before you've gathered all the relevant evidence. One thing humans tend to do is just a well-known psychological phenomenon is form an early theory and then seek evidence that reinforces it rather than evidence that contradicts it. So investigators really need to be aware of that and work to counteract that, making sure they're not being biased. Uh, Treating witness interviews like a (laughs) cross-examination, slamming hands on the table, you know, any of that type of stuff playing gotcha or trying to get admissions that can't happen and it's going to look bad in the end. So again, you know, investigator selection is so important because a friend or enemy of either of the parties could accidentally take sides without realizing it. So the less the investigator knows the parties, the lower the risks of bias or the perception of bias and taking sides. I have to share with you my funny, my favorite, most favorite deposition I ever did was in a sexual harassment case. And I was asking the person those totally boring questions about training. So how were you trained to be? How did you learn to conduct a workplace investigation into sexual harassment? I had someone tell me, hand to God, by watching Judge Judy (laughs) and Law and Order. And they did not come on. I thought, oh, they're just messing with me. I asked four follow-up questions and they stuck with it. <laughs> you have this idea that people, oh, yeah, I've seen how it's done. I know how this works. <laughs> All the more reason to choose a qualified investigator. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. That's a good one. Oh, it's my favorite. That statement went in every document I filed after the deposition, whether it was relevant or not. <laughs> 
<laughs> just stuck it in there. <laughs> All right, keep going. All right, next one. Okay, pitfall number six. We're on six now is promising confidentiality. So uh, one thing that people all often ask for is full confidentiality. It's really important not to promise witnesses that what they tell them will not leave the room because they an investigator's got to be upfront with the witnesses that confidentiality is limited because the company may need to disclose some pieces of information to the other witnesses to get relevant information. Investigator may have to ask a certain witness some questions that could allow for that person to make an inference that a certain person shared something. For example, if there are only two parties to a conversation and I have to ask the other person questions about the conversation, that person may make assumptions about where the information came from, even if I don't share names. Also, we may have to reveal certain information or the company may have to reveal certain information to take a disciplinary action and actually act upon the results of the investigation or remedial action. And Obviously, the investigator is going to have to report the findings to someone at the company, and then the company internally may have to share that with perhaps the board or or some other relevant individual. So while an investigator can promise to disclose on a need-to-know basis, a proper investigation is going to preclude complete confidentiality. It just can't be done that way. So an unqualified promise confidentiality is just misleading. It's likely to cause complaints, mistrust, and other problems down the line. Do you think that one of the things that strikes me with that is, well, that is super difficult. It's super difficult. And But one of the other things that strikes me in that is the idea that as an investigator, you have to say what happened, either describing it or if it was language that you're not comfortable with, maybe it was discriminatory, maybe it was racist. You have to say what was said. Do you... Do you think so? I mean, that's always been in my head is you can't, and maybe that's a trial thing because you can't use, you can't use a euphemism. You can't yeah. allude to it. You have to right. say, this is what was said. And that can be super difficult. Don't you think? It can. Yeah. And, and we'll talk in a minute about failing to reach conclusions like that. And oh, that's a pitfall, but yeah, no, you have to, you, you got to put it out there. And <laughs> this is what happened. Right. And, And yeah, maybe there are times where it may be appropriate to aggregate the complaints if there's some kind of risk of retaliation and sort of anonymize them that way. And there's times where we've done that or consulted with the company. Like we don't want to create a risk uh, that someone's going to perceive retaliation because of how we wrote this report, or maybe you don't write a report in that case that can be pointed to. So there's ways that you can, you know, look around mitigating retaliation risks and things like that. But in the end, you have to make findings and you're going to have to tell someone what happened. So you can't promise complete confidentiality in that way. Absolutely. All right. So we are getting, I, we're getting down to it. All right. So let's do this. So pick one more, your absolute must, they must know tip. And yeah. then I want to hear your, I want to hear your wrap up and then we'll, we'll have to say goodbye. Okay. Well, yeah, we actually kind of touched on one, which is failing to reach conclusions. So we can skip that. But yeah, you got to make findings. Um, That's your job. If not you, who's going to do it? So I can talk about the biggest pitfall, which is failure to properly document the investigation. And there's going to be various aspects of documentation, but the report is not the only aspect of documentation of an investigation. A really great way to avoid the pitfall of failing to properly document when you think you're going to remember everything and three years later, you don't. I mean, what do you and I remember from five years ago (laughs) when we did our first episode? So you get sued, you're going to want to have that backup documentation. So the biggest thing I can say is document, 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 have an investigation plan. It's a living document, update it along the way, say what you're going to do. If you didn't do it, say why you didn't do it. 
uh, track what you did, why, take good interview notes, record information about the documents that were collected and reviewed, where they came from, when you got them, have a well-organized investigation file. And just remember, if you can get deposed on an investigation years later when you have completely moved on with your life. And so do you have the documentation to back of what you did, even if there's no report? And there's cases where you don't always write an investigation report, although pitfall tenants don't write a bad one. <laughs> and you can read about this in the article. There's a lot more details of this uh, in the article on our website. But documentation is always... This is what I always say as a takeaway, as a shortcut, to avoid these pitfalls. Okay. Anytime you're making a decision as an investigator, stop and think to yourself, how would this look at trial? How would it look in a deposition? Can I explain it? Can I defend it? Imagine yourself in the hot seat answering those questions. And most of the time, that'll help you make the better choice. Awesome. Well, Tina, thank you so much. That's our show for today. I just thank you so much for coming back and helping to celebrate our 100th episode and for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with our listeners. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to be back for the 100th episode. And here's looking for 200. There we go. (laughs) You can learn more about Tina Rad and Wagner Law by visiting www.wagnerlaw.com. That's W-A-G-E-N-E-R-L-A-W.com. You can also connect with Tina via our website at workplaceperspective.com. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the name at night and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar. 